Hello, this is Chris Robinson, writer and producer of the Forbidden Diary audio drama. I'm here with Jim Zobel. He's the archivist at the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia. And we're going to talk about General MacArthur and events in episodes 9 and 10 from March 18 to July 1942. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. Before I start, I'd like to say that Natalie heard immediately about events the Japanese wanted prisoners to know about, in other words, U.S. defeats. But news about U.S. victories took a little longer to reach her, even though they had a secret radio in camp. So I wanted to start by asking you about how prisoners got news, both military and civilian, from outside of camp. Were there secret radios? Well, I know that Santa Tomas, there was a secret radio in the camp. I know that in Cabanatuan, they had a radio there. They have them there at Santo Tomas and Bilibid and then at Cabanatuan, most definitely. Yeah. There were severe repercussions. Sure. They? Yeah. Did anybody ever get caught? Not that I know of. These guys were pretty savvy to that. And um, radios were transferred around, I think, from different place to different place, always taken apart, put back together for the transmissions. I know the one in Cabanatuan that when the guys from Corregidor came, they had many different parts, you know, many different guys brought them in. And, you know, before you came in there, you, you had a shakedown pretty good, but the Corregidor guys got in without as much as those guys that from Bataan that went into O'Donnell. So they were bringing, able to bring in parts. And then what they did is the Japanese would bring radios and different equipment to Americans to fix in Cabanatuan prison camp. And the Americans would say, oh, well, you need this thing, you know, which was really a piece for the radio that they wanted to put together. And so that's how they would maintain parts for that. But, uh, you know, as, as far as the other ones, I don't know much about it. I just know that they were there. Yeah. And then there were there were messages from the outside, too. Right. Like Natalie wrote about Filipino women leaving notes under rocks for the wood crew to find. What other ways did prisoners get information other than the radio? You know, it mostly comes from the outside. You know, you've got these few radios, but up at Cabanatuan with the military prisoners, as well as at Bilibid, you had a lot of different people working to get medicine in, get food supplies, get money to people. They had a prison way to get mail from Cabanatuan to Santa Tomas so people could write each other from those different places. And that was taking place with these Filipinos that, you know, were all part of these networks that were getting supplies in. And they were also funneling in information. Of course, that all gets caught in about 1944 when the Japanese Kempei Tai pretty much grab everybody that was doing this kind of work. And Natalie was saying anytime somebody went to the hospital, everyone pumped them for information. Sure. So MacArthur, did he broadcast news when he was on uh, Corregidor? There was a Voice of Freedom that was run by uh, Carlos Romulo. You know, he's an old newspaper guy, and they broadcast from Corregidor. This would go out to people in the Philippines as well as, as the, the troops like that. But I don't know of MacArthur doing any kind of broadcast. I've seen pictures of um, radio broadcast facilities within Corregidor and Malinta Tunnel and uh, Kazon broadcasting on for the Voice of Freedom. So I know that, that he did a broadcast, but how many, I don't know. But yeah, they were broadcasting uh, from there until the fall of Corregidor. So when we last talked about MacArthur, we left him. He was bunkered on the island of Corregidor, Manila Bay. Well, actually, Natalie didn't write about it because she didn't know uh, MacArthur had been ordered to leave the Philippines and he had left for right. Australia March 11th. Who ordered him to go and why? 
Well, that was President Roosevelt that orders him out. The American, British, Dutch, Australian command had fallen apart with the fall of Singapore and the naval forces being pushed down in Indonesia, and they wanted to create a new command. Australia was really worried about the Japanese moving. By January, they were already at Rabaul, which is on New Britain, headed towards them. By March, uh, they're at Salamaua and Leh, which is right on the southeast coast of New Guinea. They're moving. And uh, New Zealand and Australia are really starting to get worried. And they start lobbying for MacArthur. They want him to come down there as well. The Japanese are broadcasting every day. We're going to capture MacArthur. We're going to hang him right in the middle of Imperial Plaza. And Roosevelt doesn't want that to happen. And so he makes the decision to order him out come late February. And by the March 11th, MacArthur makes the decision that he's going to go out on those 14 four torpedo boats with his small staff. MacArthur doesn't want to go. No. He... They said that once the orders had been received, MacArthur was saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go. I'm going to refuse to go. And that's what the other staff say. And then they said the staff got together and were like looking at all the message traffic. They've been coming and saying, look at all this stuff that's in Australia. Let's go. Let's get it. Let's come back. Whether MacArthur believes he can do that, I think he did because he was thoroughly crushed when they get to Australia and they find out nothing's there. But that was the the general idea that they would make the the move down to Australia and they would be able to come back and, and redeem the Philippines. Of course, there's nothing when they get to Australia and they realize it's going to be a long haul to get back to the Philippines. You mentioned a PT boat, so it was just a few people. It was Cloak and Dagger. How did they? Yeah, they made a list. I mean, MacArthur wants to get there and have a staff to be able to work with. Um, a lot of people have criticized this. Washington said you can only take your chief of staff and a couple of naval officers, as well as Harold George, who was the air officer. And MacArthur makes a decision. No, I've got to, I'm going to need all these people. If I want to land in Australia and land with, on the ground with my feet running, I'm going to need all these guys with me. And so he takes them all on the four t- torpedo boats. Everybody thought he'd go by submarine, but MacArthur had a personal connection with John Buckley, who runs Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3, and he trusts Buckley. And so they decide to make the 580-mile overwater run down to Cagayan de Oro by a PT boat. Even though these guys have never been out of Manila Bay, they got no charts, they got no seafaring equipment whatsoever, and uh, they make it all the way down there, and MacArthur gets flown down to Australia. And his family's with him, his son's with yeah, him, and he's got, his wife, Jean. He's got Jean, and he's got Arthur with him as as well as a Chinese Ama Lo Chu, who's been with the family for forever since Arthur was born. So they, they took her as well, which is also a subject of a lot of criticism from a lot of people. Who stayed? What happened to them? Well, Wainwright stays. Wainwright will be in command. MacArthur set it up so that each command was still under him because he didn't want one place surrendering and then the, everybody having to surrender. Thing is, he doesn't tell Washington about that setup. And once he's gone, Washington's dealing straight with Wainwright as the commander of the Philippines. And so when he's gone, Wainwright's command on Corregidor, and he's got control of all the forces on Luzon. And that's uh, General King is in command on Bataan. You've got some loose, disparate elements up there north of Baguio, but everybody else on on Luzon is, is pretty much in Bataan. You've got forces down on Cebu. You've got forces on Panay. You know, very small contingents. You have a very large force on Mindanao. And so these people are still fighting when MacArthur leaves on March 17th when he flies out of Australia. Uh, of course, Bataan's only going to have another month uh, until April 9th. And then on May 6th, the entire Philippines surrenders because the Japanese know that Washington considers Wainwright the commander. And when they capture Corregidor on May 6th, they say, look, you surrender the entire islands or 
we're going to open the campaign back up again and you have nothing to fight with. So you're facing a 13,000 man massacre. And so that's how Wainwright convinces everybody on all the other islands to surrender. And that's, that's why they do. I want to roll back a little bit and talk about the fall of Singapore in February, 1942. The Japanese made a big deal out of telling the prisoners about that. Why was that so significant? Well, because it was the fall of um, you know, a major British command, as well as a division, practically, of, of Australian troops, um, as well as tons of other Commonwealth troops there that surrender basically without a, you know, a big fight for Singapore. And uh, that was just a, you know, a psychological blow to everything. Now only the Americans are really fighting in the Philippines. Everybody else is being pushed out of everywhere. And so that is a big psychological blow. And that is uh, something that the Japanese would be very happy to tell all the prisoners, you know, to, to decrease their morale even further. Let's go back to Bataan and Corregidor. So in episode nine, the prisoners hear about the surrender of Bataan April 9th. So let's just do a Cliff Notes review. So Bataan is located where and why did MacArthur send all of his troops there? It's in the middle of Luzon, the main island. It's on the west coast. It is a peninsula that juts into Manila Bay and from the Pacific Ocean, and it protects Corregidor. The heights of Bataan protect, you know, they overlook Corregidor. So you, and Corregidor is the thing that holds Manila Bay. So in order to hold Corregidor, you have to hold Bataan. And it had been planned since the Americans first came into the Philippines, really after the turn of the century, that if ever attacked by the Japanese, they would go to Bataan and hold out there. And so that was basically the plan. MacArthur changed the plan right before the war where he wanted to defend on the beaches and try to hold off a Japanese invasion. That didn't work. And so a couple of days after the Japanese invasion on December 22nd, 1941, or December 19th, and then throughout the 22nd, the Japanese just moved right through those forces. And MacArthur orders that plan to be re-envisioned, that war plan orange where they go back to Bataan. So everybody from Luzon that was in the south as well as the north, they'll withdraw into Bataan. And that's completed by about early January. So there's basically about four months of fighting on Bataan. So come April 9th, what happens? Was there an official handover? What what was... Well, the Japanese had brought in a lot of reinforcements after the fall of Singapore. They brought the air power back. That had moved south after the initial invasion of the Philippines to take over Indonesia. It came, comes back in late March, early April. They build up their artillery forces. This is all the Japanese. And then on April 2nd, they launch an attack right against two Filipino divisions that pretty much crumble. Immediately, the Filipinos and Americans were starving. They were on quarter rations. They were not eating at all. They had malaria medicine ran out by early March. All these people are infested with it. They've got dengue fever, malaria. They are now going to start getting dysentery with the, the lack of food as well as the lack of, of ability to, to clean themselves up. And they are pretty much exhausted. They said that a, a man who was in fighting shape could walk in full gear in 100 yards without having to stop and rest. And that's nothing. That's pretty much your entire army is Collapse. So when the Japanese launched that attack on April 2nd, 1942, they think it's going to take them another month to take Bataan, and they take it in a week because the entire American Filipino force just uh, falls apart. And then a month later, or about a month later, Corregidor falls. Yeah, once uh, once they've got Bataan, then Corregidor's in the 
the crosshairs. And it's just an artillery bombardment for a month. Every single inch is decimated by Japanese artillery. And then they pull off an invasion on May 5th, May 6th. Um, They get troops ashore, even though the first wave just gets slaughtered in the ocean. But they make it ashore and they are able to get tanks ashore. And by that next morning, those tanks are pitch to go right into the Malinta tunnel and fire right into the hospitals. And that's when Wainwright surrenders. Natalie wrote that all of the bank funds were on Corregidor. Is that true? They had taken all the gold and all the silver there. The gold of, of the Philippines was taken out by submarine. It's taken to the United States, returned after the war. The silver ingots, coins, all that kind of stuff is dumped in the bottom of Manila Bay. The Japanese will try to get people to find it the whole time. They never do. After the war, that's all brought back up from the bottom of the ocean. Wow. So that was it. When Corregidor went, that was that was the end of it. Yeah, the Japanese got everybody. They put them down in that 92nd garage area. There's about 13,000 people on Corregidor. And for about two weeks, they're held down there at that beach until Wainwright gets everybody in the Philippines to surrender. And that was their, that was what the Japanese said. You surrender now or we're going to just open the campaign again. And all you guys are right down there with no weapons to defend yourself. They had to have surrender to the Philippines. They had to take Corregidor. They had to take Wainwright. What happens to Wainwright? He's captured. He'll go up to Tarlac. All the senior officers will go there. They'll eventually go to Formosa. Uh, in August of 1942, and then they'll eventually move up to Manchuria. And that's where all the senior officers will will be liberated. Mm. And while this is going on, MacArthur is in Australia watching or hearing about all of this. Well, yeah, they get the, you know, the final radios that come out. There's a lot of controversy about this because Roosevelt told Wainwright, if you need to surrender, go ahead, even though they said no surrender before that. But he says, "We, we leave it to you. MacArthur doesn't forward that message to Wainwright. Um, when Wainwright makes the decision to surrender, MacArthur says he's unbalanced, says he's being coerced to do this. And that's the thing. If MacArthur had stayed, I think pretty much everybody would have had to fight to the death. And uh, it would have been the Alamo times 20. And so I say the greatest thing ever happened to anybody on Batan Corregidor was MacArthur leaving March 11th. Because you had King and you had Wainwright were these generals who were going to try and eke out some survival for somebody. And that's what they did. So MacArthur is in Australia. Other things are happening, and and Natalie doesn't talk about it until November. Yeah, she wouldn't know. Yeah, No, uh uh-uh. But in April and June, the U.S. is beginning an offensive action in Tokyo, right, with the Doolittle Raid. Yeah, yeah. Now, was MacArthur connected to that event, or was this... No, he didn't know about it. That was a Navy and a U.S. Army Air Corps uh, show that they pulled off. MacArthur was really ticked off about it. It's like, okay, you, you know, you've told me you can't support me, you can't do anything to help me, but yet you pull off this propaganda stunt, because that's all it was, where you send Doolittle's flyers over Japan, they all crash in China, And MacArthur's like, you could have had them fly over the Philippines. They all could have landed in Mindanao safely. You wouldn't have lost anybody. And they could have carried out bombing raids against Manila, all these places, you know, and then flown back to Australia. And so he was very upset about the Doolittle raid. 
talk a little bit about the Doolittle raid. It was a propaganda thing. It was a brilliantly pulled off operation. I mean, they got in and got close enough to Tokyo to be able to launch army bombers off of aircraft carriers. These are B-25s that you don't put on an aircraft carrier, but they figured out how to do it. And they figured out how to fly these planes off of there and they flew off from they knew they were going to run out of gas. They they actually do bomb, you know, parts of Japan. Japan had always said nobody will ever be able to touch the home islands. They will never be able to bomb us. And then just a few short months after Pearl, they actually do it. So, I mean, it was a very big propaganda ploy. It was a very big deal for Roosevelt and the Allies. I mean, it didn't mean much. But like I said, MacArthur was really kind of irked about it. Well, so how did the Japanese react to that? Did it cause them to attack the U.S. at Midway? No, these were, those were plans that Yamamoto had been working on for quite a while. They had tried to go down and take Port Moresby. And this is that base that's closest to Australia on New Guinea. And that was the big coral sea battle. That was what that was all about, was trying to get Japanese troops. Because if you take Port Moresby, it had seven airfields, which would have cut off Australia from the Allied sea power. And so even though they go to try to do that, they're planning this big operation to try and suck out all the American sea power and destroy it. Because both Japan and America had built their entire navies on this concept of Mahanian sea power, where you tried Alpha Thayer Mahan, who had created this book in the late 19th century called The Influence of Sea Power on World History. And the Japanese and Americans, basically, uh, this is their Bible. And so they're both looking for this big, giant battle that will destroy the other person's fleet. And the Japanese thought they could suck out the Americans, but the Americans had broken the Japanese code. And so that's why uh, they were able to be there and be able to hit the Japanese before they really knew what was going on. So those were plans that had been made long before, and they were just pulled off in June. But those were two big events that will totally change the war in the Pacific. Most definitely. So did Midway embolden the U.S. to fight at Guadalcanal? Oh, yes, most definitely. After those, you know, you've lost five Japanese aircraft carriers with Coral Sea as well as Midway. And the thing is, it was a strategic defensive in the Pacific. Everything was going to defeat the Nazis first. That was another thing that just had MacArthur losing his mind. We weren't attacked by Germany first. We were attacked by the Japanese. But Roosevelt had made the decision that you had to keep the Russians in the war or else they wouldn't be able to defeat the Nazis in Europe. And the only way they could do that was by supplying them. So when Midway happens and Coral Sea happens, Admiral Ernest King, who's the chief of naval operations, He's able to convince the Joint Chiefs as well as the Combined Chiefs with the British and the American Chiefs of Staff that we have to go on this limited offensive. We've got the opportunity. If we don't do this, we're just going to prolong this war in the Pacific till late 1940s. We have to move. And so that's when they come up with the idea of dropping the 1st Marine Division at Guadalcanal as well as MacArthur moving up into the north coast of Papua New Guinea. Wasn't that risky? Didn't the Japanese have the best night optics and rangefinders and torpedo systems at that time? Yes, as far as, as ship-going cruisers and things like that. And they proved that pretty much immediately. When the Americans go into Guadalcanal, the Japanese force sends, goes down there, and in a night battle, they sink like uh, three cruisers or three or four cruisers, an Australian cruiser that's lost. And, and you know, I think uh, you know that's when those the five Sullivan brothers get killed is on that night there. And so... Uh, Call it Iron Bottom Sound because there's so many ships sunk right next to Guadalcanal. So yes, that was probably the the greatest struggle of, of the Pacific War was for that one little island. 
started what july 7th and it continued to the october august yeah they, they drop in there in, in august in august i'm sorry yeah and it, it'll it'll go through because you know, the japanese will see how import, important it is and they will constantly flood troops in there the americans will constantly flood troops there'll be i think some like four thousand american sailors aside from the marines will be killed in the naval conflicts there it's just it's astronomical it's unbelievable so that's how we won yes completely why was Guadalcanal called Starvation Island? Well, the Japanese called it that. And that was basically just because you, you couldn't get any supplies in. And the Japanese were, you know, as soon as they were put on, they were starving. Thing is, is the Japanese land on those islands. I think you have two different detachments that land from in that time of August. And, you know, they both get wiped out almost immediately um, because they put every effort in to trying to kick the Americans off that island. Because if they can control that island and have that Henderson field, it's like I said, they've totally isolated Australia completely and totally. So it, it was the battleground. But Starvation Island is because everybody starves there, you know, Japanese-wise. Well, even though Natalie didn't hear about it until much later, could other people on the islands have heard about Midway and Guadalcanal? The reason why I'm asking you this is, couldn't these victories have encouraged guerrilla activities in the Philippines? Well, nobody has radio contact. The, the first radio contact MacArthur has with any elements in the Philippines is September of 1942. And this is when um, Guillermo Nakar, who's up in the north, he had worked with Prager and, and these other guys that had been up in the north with the 20, you know, were, were cut off from going into Bataan. And they had all been up around Baguio. And Nakar gets a radio that had been with Prager and, and he gets hold of MacArthur, but he gets captured right after that. And it's not until early 1943 that Peralta on Panay and then Fertig on Mindanao will get radio contact with MacArthur's headquarters. And then it's after that that they really start building radio contact with all the different islands. And that's because after that first contact, they send in Jesus Villamor, a former Philippine pilot. He'll go into Negros as a guerrilla with radios. And then uh, you'll have Chick Parsons and Charlie Smith, these two Navy and Army officers that are snuck in by submarine into Mindanao. And so they'll start setting up Coast Watcher stations. And after that, you'll start having a lot more information come into the Philippines. But the 1942 period, not really. And that's what's so crazy about that rise of the guerrilla movement. September, October 1942, um, they pretty much erupt on all the islands. And it's not coordinated. You know, it's, it's, it's just that they've all had enough. Within, you know, four or five months of the Japanese being there, it's, it's like, this isn't going to work. We got to work to get the Americans back here. And, and that's, how, that's how bad the Japanese blew it. They, if they went in there with a total different mindset, uh, who knows how, how it could have worked out for them. But Natalie knew about Guadalcanal and Midway in, I think it was in, in November. So she knew about yeah. it. Other people must have known about that. I'm not talking about internal communications, just news reports mm -hmm. that people had heard about what was going on in the world. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the Philippines that got shortwave radios. I'm sure that information is coming into them. But as far as like official military contact, you know, with MacArthur, there's none of that. Nobody's got right, no. transmitters that they're transmitting out. The first signals that really come out are that, that end of 1942. Right. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Life in these two episodes. Life is just is going on, the dull roar in the prison. So Natalie writes about prison life and about the guards. 
we talked about the civilian Japanese and civilian and uh, Japanese soldiers in our last conversation, but I have just a couple more questions. Were the uh, civilian Japanese guards common in the prisons? And then that begs the speculation that labor shortages must have been a problem for the Japanese. Uh, as guards, no, I don't. I don't think so. Administrators, things like that, I, I've I've heard of them being in in that sense. The guards, at least in the in the military prisons, are mostly Formosan Koreans, um, and they're overseen by Japanese um, Koreans. Yes, yeah, you know, because they're all vassal states of Japan at the time. So you have these people that have been conscripted on these islands or volunteered. But they're all part of that Japanese system. And, and the Cabanatuan prisoners saw a group of about 200 Formosans that came in. And they were being trained as guards by the Japanese. And they were just getting wailed on, kicked, punched, everything. And the prisoners were looking at them just like, oh, man, here it comes. Because the Formosans aren't going to have anybody to beat up except the prisoners. And so that, that's just the way it works in the system. The Formosans and Koreans at the time were a lot worse just because they didn't want to get brutalized by their Japanese overseers. And sometimes the Japanese uh, overseers would see these Formosans just going out of going crazy on the prisoners, and then they beat them up for you know what they did to the prisoners. So I mean, nothing made sense at all to any of the POWs whatsoever. You know, as far as them being in the civilian camps, I, you know, I know that they were administrators. I don't know much about them being guards. Well, Natalie wrote what they did in Camp Holmes was they cycled the Japanese soldiers. And that's common for prison right, practice. Yeah. You don't want people to get too attached to the prisoners. So that's, that's sure. just sort of standard operating procedure. And I don't know whether they were the soldiers were feeding them a line, but she talked about a, just a bleak existence back in Japan. Was she being told a story or do you think that? Well, no, I mean, you know, Japan's supplies are, are all going to the military at the front. You get past 1943, 19, late 1942, they're going to they're gonna start feeling the effects just like everybody else. You've got a, a American submarines are going to start sinking a lot of tonnage. It's taking stuff back to Japan. It's going to be hard to you know, your fishing fleets are not really roaming the seas except for around the home islands. And uh, Japan feeds itself from other places. You know, it's, you can't grow enough. It's like the Philippines. You can't grow enough rice in Japan to be able to feed everybody. And so they'll they'll start feeling the effects just like everybody else once the, the fortunes of war start turning against them. And one other thing that I thought was interesting, Japan had been taking over their countries for, for what, how many decades, right? Or at least... Well, the Marco Polo Bridge incident, which they moved, you know, into North China, that's 31. And then 37 is when they go into China proper. And so they, yeah, they've been fighting pretty seriously. And, you know, that's why they were able to do as much as they did in the beginning, because those guys were all experienced. They knew what they were doing. Uh, They had the Japanese Zero, which was the best plane in the world, you know, and it's not really until allies can dominate that zero that the fortunes of war are going to start turning for the Japanese. But yes, they had, they had been at it for quite a while. They had taken over Korea, of course, in 1905, 1910 with the Russo-Japanese War. Then they move in, create the vassal state of Manchukuo up there in, in Manchuria, and then they eventually in, invade China proper. And so that was the main reason for the war coming. You know, the, all you saw back in America was all these films of Japanese brutality in China, and that's what eventually makes... Roosevelt slap on the embargoes and all that in 41, you know. Right. Well, weren't they running out of soldiers? I mean, 
they're definitely running out of pilots. They're going to run out of pilots real quick, you know, especially after four carriers go down at, at Midway. There's all your experienced pilots are gone. Well, then what do you do? You're putting people in there that don't have experience, and that's why the Battle of the Philippine Sea in 44 is called the Marianas Turkey Shoot, because these guys didn't know how to fly. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And well, I'm going to go back a little bit to Doolittle's because he's the bombing of, of Tokyo, and that was a propaganda thing. But did the Japanese people start questioning? Yeah, I would think so. That's an eye opener for them. That's going to be one of the first glaring things of you know how you know because you can't explain that away. How did they bomb us? How did how did that happen? I mean, the Japanese can't really vocalize it. You've got the Japanese police that are going to haul away anybody that's saying anything, and so it is pretty much a, a controlled situation. It's not until June of 1944 that they really understand everything is turned against them. And that's with the fall of the Marianas Islands, you know, which was inside their long standing defensive perimeter. And that'll cause the fall of the Tojo government. So yeah, Japanese information is very hard to come by. And it's, you know, even at the end of the war, they're like, what? You know, how did this happen? Yeah, well, that was a different time. We didn't hear everything either. Well, it was a different Different government control as well. Right, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I just wanted to touch touch a little bit about the, the, the Filipinos and how they sided with the Americans. And, you know, I mean, there were deep, deep bonds. And some Filipinos literally risked their lives to keep Americans alive. Do you have any stories along those lines that you've heard of in your travels about some great heroic things that the Filipinos have Oh, yeah. Did? Uh, I mean, all those guys that evade capture and become guerrillas that get away from Bataan or get away from Corregidor, get away from Mindanao. The only reason they make it is because of Filipinos. Without Filipino help, they all would have been captured again. I mean, some of them get turned in by Filipinos. You never know who you're going to meet. I mean, there's a lot of Filipinos that joined the Makapili, which is, you know, allied with Japan and whatnot. But none of them would have made, none of those Americans would have made it if they didn't have Filipino help. Or And, and that's what the Japanese could never understand. Why are you so close with these colonizers? Thing was, is when the Americans came in there, they eradicated disease. They started schools. They started jurisprudence. I mean, everybody had rights, and the Filipinos knew that. And so the bulk of them are, are you know, once they see the Japanese come in, they'll stay allied with, with the Americans, and Japanese just can't, can't fathom it. But wasn't there also some, some resentment? about the U.S. deserting the Philippines. There's a huge loss of life. Oh, sure. There must have been some some dissent. Well, yeah, and, and that's the, you know, like the Aquino people, like Ricarte, you know, all these former revolutionaries and everything that'll, that'll come back and have a voice. The Japanese will bring them to the fore in the Philippines, trying to talk them into drawing the American, you know, putting a separation between the Americans and the Filipinos. And they'll run a lot of programs to try and do this. But the thing is, is, and I, I keep stressing this, the Filipinos see immediately what's up. You know, they're, they're vassals, they're slaves. They don't have a say, you know, I mean, if you're a, if you're a total collaborator, you know, you might get by, but the thing is you're only getting by because They've said, we're going to murder your daughter unless you do this, or we're going to take your wife away from you and all that. And so there's a, you know, a great deal of that going on. And that seems to override any resentment against the Americans, basically. One of the things that, um, and and I'm not sure, because Natalie writes about it a lot, so I might be 
overplaying it or um, but she talked a lot about the Chinese and mm-hmm. and they were they were interned initially and then the Japanese freed them. Were there a lot of Chinese living? Well, I think there are a lot of Chinese, but Chinese mestizos, people of Chinese blood. The the Chinese had a big influx, you know, throughout the Philippines for forever. And you were, you know, you had Chinese Filipinos and then you have the Spanish Filipinos mestizos. American mestizo. So, I mean, you have a ton of Chinese blood. You've also got a, a big Chinese community within Manila. And, I, and I've, I've read that about uh, the, a great deal as well up in the northern Cordillera, up near Baguio and whatnot. So, yes, China and, and Philippines had been interacting for centuries. So there are, uh, is a great population of, of Chinese within there, you know, and that's, that's Right, and they're feeling yeah, and that's the same that's you way. know that's uh, Emilio Aguinaldo's blood is you know is Chinese mestizo. So I mean, it's a you know. Yep, they were they were thinking the same thing as the Filipinos about the, the yeah. Japanese. Yeah. We talked about the um, co-prosperity sphere and Orient for the Orientals. That happened a while back, though, didn't that? Didn't the Japanese start that? Well, that's pushing all the way through the war, you know, especially, in the, you know, when they go into these places, that was their spiel. We've eliminated the the colonizers. It's Asia for the Asians. It's the co-prosperity sphere. And it's like, you know, it's a co-prosperity sphere with Japan in control and everything goes to Japan. That's what it was. But what happened with the imperialism of the Japanese was that was started with a movement, I think, was in the 1920s to try to get the Westerners out of, or there was a faction in Japan that had had enough and they wanted to get them out. Well, there was always that faction, but yeah, I, I mean, it's just something that, that you know, it, it goes back to the open door with China. You know, let's, we got to get these European people out of here. That was the catalyst that finally caused it to happen, you know. Yeah. You mentioned there were other prison camps, civilian prison camps. I think there were, well, one in uh, one in Manila, Santo Tomas. That was a big yes, one. Yes, that. Camp Holmes. Uh, you had Los Banos. Uh, when the people were all taken down in Cebu, they were put in the provincial jail. Down in Mindanao, it was at Davao, this place called Happy Life Blues Camp. On Leyte, they held a bunch of people at Tacloban. Then I think the Bacolod on uh, Bacolod on uh, Negros, you know, had a small one. All these people are eventually moved north. You know, all the civilians, they're all put into San Tomas or, or Los Banos. And then by 44, all those people up at Camp Holmes will all be brought down to Manila as well. Jim Halsema. So in, for the listener, Jim, that's the guy who's the reporter in, in the um, audio drama. And he gave several oral histories. One for, was for the Library of Congress and the other one for University of California at Fullerton. And he referred to Camp Holmes as kind of the country club of the prisons. Do you think it lived up to that title? Wouldn't you want to go to Camp Holmes if you had your pick? Well, the, for the climate, if nothing else. I mean, uh, you know, the Philippines, you're pretty much sweltering on the equator, you know, whereas in, in Baguio, you're up in the mountains and it's it's a nice climate. Were they treated any better? So did they have more food up in there? In Santa Tomas, you've got like 4,500 people crammed in there. Um, here at, at, at Holmes, you got like 500. So it's, you know, the overcrowding is not like it is, you know, at the, at the other places. I think at Los Banos, you had like, you know, another 2,500 and they were living in, you know, thatch huts and, and tents and things like that. So yes, if you, I'd say if you wanted to be somewhere, you wanted to be up at, at Baguio. Right. I don't know if I told you this, but the actor who plays Enid in the audio drama, her family was in Santo Tomas. Hmm. 
And what was really amazing is her mother, still alive, knew Fred Crowder, Beatty Crowder. Wow. And we, yeah. And she lived, of course, the Americans were a small group, so I think everybody knew everyone. They lived in Manila, but their kids went to Brent School. And she remembers going to, at that time, mm-hmm. They when someone got the chicken pox or something, they had a chicken pox party. With all the kids, right, yeah. Yeah, right. So she remembers going to one of those and going to other parties to see the crowd. Wow. So I yeah. emailed Fred and I said, do you remember this person? He goes, oh, yeah, I do. Awesome. And so isn't that awesome? So after, what, 80, I mean, I don't know how many years of Fred's probably in this early 90s right now, but yet, and her, her mother, the actor's mother's probably the same, but yeah, we, they remembered each other and they had a nice conversation over the phone. I think that's just fabulous. Anyway, in our, in our next conversation, Jim and I are going to talk about the remaining episodes in season two, where Natalie wrote about the guerrillas and resistance fighting. So we're going to get into all of that next time. So in the meantime, I highly recommend a visit to the General MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia, and to see their upcoming POW exhibit. And that starts when, Jim? September 30th. And it'll be open for, what, two years, right? Yeah, we'll run that until about July of 2025. And, and your website again is? It's www.macarthurmemorial.org. Great. Okay, well, please join Jim and me again for our next conversation following episode 13. Thanks again, Jim. Thank you. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of For.